Hey, gang. Whenever I think about the surgery that my younger brother Daniel just had, a surgery that we're going to discuss on today's show, I want to say the F word. And then I want to say, well, I want to say a lot of words, but they're not kid appropriate words. So I'm going to say them. So if there are people in the house who don't want to hear them, get them out of the room. That's your obscenity warning for today. I mean, Montreal bagels are the best bagels in the world, and it's stupid I, to even have oh, a discussion gonna get, about it. It's going to get so real. Shit's going to get real. <laughs> it's gonna Wait, get I mean, so what? Real. You really, like, I yelled at Waldman and just threw down the doughy gauntlet. Happy early Valentine's Day, Jews. This is Unorthodox, the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Really? You're going to treat Stephanie like this on Valentine's Day? <laughs> is it because I'm a woman? I'm switching it back up. Oh, and tablet. Smash the patriarchy, I say. Deputy editor Stephanie Boutnik. Yes. Actually, my cousin's Instagram is Boutnik. Boutnik. That's like. It's very fancy. That's a, that's a boutique. <laughs> it's like a Tarjay thing. That's a boutique, a boutique for your butt. <laughs> um, for this special Valentine's Day app, uh, three guests, Jews of the Week, Ayelet Waldman, author of a new book about doing LSD, no joke, uh, and have to, semi-semite Andrea Salenzi, uh, host of a superb podcast about dating. And our Gentile of the Week is Harvard historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who's written a book that could be summarized, perhaps inaccurately, as polygamy wasn't so bad for the Mormon women back in the day. So we're going to talk to her about that. Before we do, uh, we got to bring the love. It's a Valentine's Day episode. Uh, what's up? What's up, Jews? You want me to go first? Because something's seriously up in the Oppenheimer mishpucha, but... Something is always seriously up so, in the Oppenheimer mishpucha. Brewing. Is it Valentine's Day related? It kind of... It's love. It's love related. Oh, who is it's it? Lo- it's about my brother, Danielle. Daniel. Oh, I thought um, this was going to be like, Rebecca has a crush. No, Rebecca's 10. Bite your tongue. She's at least nine She's months away. She's ready to make from... out with an Israeli soldier oh, when she goes to Israel. She's oh, trying to practice. God. Uh, do they have Israeli, like, ROTC? Do they have for, a program for high school, 14-year-old high schoolers who are really pumped, Liel? Y- you know what we call that? <laughs> life. We call that life. life yes. Yeah, right. No, so what's happening is I get this email from my mother Friday morning, and there's it's just a one-line email that says, you realize Dan's surgery is today. I was like, oh. Dun, dun, dun. Fuck. Like, sir, I didn't know Dan... You know, Dan was having surgery. Like, what's you know? And I started to worry. So I called Dan and said, "Dan, what's what's going on? You're having surgery today." And he said, "Oh, just my vasectomy." No, Dan had not. Oh my lord! Dan had not run this by me. There was no. <laughs> Dan didn't ask for the older brother. I, I don't know that Dan ran this Hector. by Dan, to be honest, because <laughs> like, this is not a step you so, take lightly, my friend. No, it's not a step you take lightly. Uh, let me let me rephrase the statement. It's not a step you take. It's yeah. You, period. Fist bump that. Let's let's yeah, we, let's pound we, that we, out. Can we get that. some background, like we, context? Yeah. So my dad back in the seventies, when when he was part of you know the the lefty hang in Springfield in Western Mass, several of his male friends had a vasectomy pact. This is God's honest truth. This is actually one of my great childhood stories. They had a vasectomy pact because they you know zero population growth. That was the good progressive thing. And there was a whole bunch of guys who said we're all gonna have one kid and then get the snip. And then what happened was – I'm sorry of, to say, but somewhere uh, our Trump-supporting right. listeners are laughing are, hysterically so, now. Being like, <laughs> We're just going to win this shit forever. Right. So my dad was not part of that pact. God bless him. Free thinker uh, that he is. Non-sheep, non-lemming, non-crowd follower. But then what happened was – you know this is coming – a couple of them got the snip and then one of the friends broke the pact and actually had a second child. And then others were mad at him because they were like, yo. Like, I got this tattoo. I, right. Like, right, like what you're do you supposed mean, to go next. What do you mean you're not going to – what do you mean it was just a joke? So the point is we Oppenheimers are – this is probably the first vasectomy. Filander, this is why I'm a conservative. Right? So, <laughs> so the point is we Oppenheimers, there's a strong history of not being vasectomatoires. 
And Dan, um, yeah, he broke that. He broke that. He's, do, you, do you know under what circumstances I would let someone take a, a, take a knife to, to my penis? Say for like a Game of Thrones type of scenario in which you know the Dothraki are like tying me to a, yeah. a, a, a mule. And it is absolutely no way. I know we're going to get mail from people like, well, we did this yeah. a medical procedure. That, and, no. So I said no. to my brother, I said, but Dan, I said, there's so many reasons I would never have a vasectomy. Number one, uh, knife near balls. No, no, thank you. Number two, if God forbid anything ever happened to my beloved bride, Sid, I'd want to remarry and I'd I'd want to go young and I'd want to, you know, having more kids would have to be part of the option. You could tell this is not the first time he's had that thought, right? <laughs> so anyway, Dan said, I've done the math, right? Like, you're right. Um, I too, if God forbid anything happened to Jess tomorrow, I'd want that to be part of the plan. He said, but look, only that would only be a scenario to worry about if it was in the next five or six or seven, you know, by the time I'm 50. And then I met someone pretty soon and she wanted to have kids and my vasectomy this weren't reversible. This is the most Oppenheimer thing ever. Like they're running like arbitrage <laughs> of what would happen. Like when would their wives might die? So, so his, they could, his gamble oh, is like, it's Lord. fine. His gamble was the game theory says it's fine. Also, he then took a weekend at his mother-in-law's house away from his mother-in-law lives near them in Austin to recuperate, to just ice his balls. And my sister flew down from Chicago to help take care of his kids at his like house that. with his wife. So he's just like watching Game so of to Thrones. Recover like from, that, you know, from ball snipping, he went to his mother in law. <laughs> I know. No, that seems like a very soothing place. I have to say, I follow your sister on Instagram and I did see that she was in Austin. She is with, with her nephew. With the nephew, yeah. The nephew, who in some so, senses was the impetus for child number three. Time for a snip. There are so many things I want to say right now. Also, how many more kids can you afford to have? Me? Four is a lot. Negative two. Someone sneaking around the gun. Is that someone back tonight? I'd like to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter, the law firm of Elizabeth Weinfeld, Mel Mazel, Jason Chris, Gabrielle Bagel, and Jamie Epstein. Gabrielle Bagel. I know all about Gabrielle Bagel. Uh, what do you know about her? Well, I know that there was a big rift in the Bagel family. Half of the Bagel family, uh, they originally are from Montreal, right? They're the Montreal Bagels. Camille Bagel moved to New York. She's the oh, New York Bagels. And let me tell is you. Is that why she added the I in the middle? so much better. So much better? So much better. Yeah. I have to say, Gabrielle Bagel has celiacs. She can't eat gluten. <laughs> yeah. And see, I just thought that what happened was when she converted to Judaism, she used to actually be Gabrielle Beignet. She was a French Huguenot. And when she converted to Judaism, her parents were really angry. And she to went, give them just a big fuck you, yeah. she took not only the Hebrew name, you know, she went deep down. Razel bat Avraham yeah. Vasara. She changed her last name to Bagel. So when you're like mad at the Bagel Jews, you're mad at her. You're mad at you her. You are. To get the newsletter, sign up at tabletmag.com or send an email asking for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever fine free podcasts like ours come to you. Don't miss an episode. And tell your friends about us. That's what you can do to help keep us on the air is tell your friends because then we get more listeners and then we get more ads and then we get more money and then we get to keep coming to you. News of the Jews. Inshallah. <sighs> what a week. If I say Hitler's personal telephone, you say... You used to call me on I'm my Hitler phone. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hitler's telephone is up for auction. It's. I feel like every like year and a half, they have to find something else of his and put it up for auction. Like Remember when they found Hitler's toilet in New Jersey on like a boat somewhere? Yes. And it was a really big deal. 
And it's like, well, what do you do? So it's like, it's up for auction on a website somewhere. I tried to bid, but you needed to like create a profile. And in German. I didn't think we had the budget for it. I think we could find the budget for that. Could you imagine? It's like 200000 to 300000 All right, maybe not. But could you imagine if, if we call if his all telephone of our were guest sitting. interviewers? Like, Hi, it's Mark Oppenheimer calling from Hitler's phone. And that's the end of the conversation. So we'll put a picture hopefully somewhere. But it's like this like red phone. Of course it's a red phone. And on the back... <laughs> It was like customized with a swastika and like Adolf Hitler. Yeah. It's like in case you were wondering case, like, whose phone, is phone this, this was. Right. Did, you have swa- comes... did you have swastika toilet paper? Like, did every you know, square? It's, like, it's a weird oh, like thing that. about like crazy malignant narcissists who like to put their names on everything. Every, everything. I thought we weren't going to talk about Too that soon. today. We're not. We're talking not about, about Leibovitz cast. The funny thing is, is like if you were like in the sales of like historic antiques, what is that? In the business of selling historic, of, of auctioning them, I feel like every time you get a Hitler thing, you're like, oh, like, like oh, these people man. again. Like, because who's can. realistically, who is bidding on that? Although, can you a imagine no. what phone calls went down with that phone? <laughs> Did he order like, pizza? Hello? Papa Gustav's? <laughs> <laughs> I would like to order 310 pizzas for Churchill. <laughs> I, I like this idea of Hitler as like a prank caller. Yeah. Um, Calling 10 Downing said, hello, is Al there? <laughs> At last name, Kaholic. <laughs> Part of the way they're like, I mean, at least all the articles about this auction are like, it's the phone that he ordered that Jews to be killed on. It's like, what? Like, ew. Ew. Like, yeah, is that who, a selling point? Who does bid on Is it crazy rich anti-Semites or like, is it is it just weird obsessives like why and, they and these are not it? the same there's no Venn diagram well, I just think there's, there's a certain kind of overlap. like obsessive who saved you know obsessive miser lives in grandma's basement has saved every penny forever and is like this is what I'm spending it on but doesn't actually have any animus toward the Jews then there's like crazy German industrialist secret closet anti- who has a Hitler room at home I would say whichever offends you more okay also can you imagine like how shitty the business of auctioneering is going to get because at least that it's a big red phone and a swastika on Adolf Hitler. Soon they're like, going to be like Trump's android. Bluetooth piece. <laughs> he it's wasn't like, allowed what? to bring it in the White House but he did. <laughs> like, oh well, you know. Uh, someday to be auctioned, um, Iran launches a missile on which was written, Israel should be wiped off the earth. Which struck me as very, dare I say, Trumpian. It's like, we'll just write mean things on our missiles. I don't mind that. Here's the thing. I don't object to that at all. Like, Iran, go ahead. Have your cakes. But here's what does offend me. Guys, Israel will be wiped off the face of the earth. Really? That's like so 1979. Like, it's 2017. Get with new messages. Write things like... Um, the American version of Homeland was so much funnier than yours. <laughs> like, or get like, him where it hurts? Or like, Bar Raffaele, not that hot. Yeah, <laughs> Bar Raffaele's getting old. Like, stuff like that that really would hurt us. You never made it to the World Cup final since 1966. <laughs> like, we will get upset. I have to say, though, like, writing a message on your missile seems redundant. It does. Like, it it's does a missile. Like, we get it. Point taken. Point taken. Not only are we going to destroy you, but also when we destroy you, there will be a message on the missile that destroy you that said, we like destroy you. flyers. Ooh. Although, to answer your question, yes. so during the first Gulf War, which I, I had the pleasure of experiencing, as yeah. those of From our up. listeners who, quit, quit bragging. Who, who know, uh, yeah, that's my, my main war experience, uh, one of them. You the, may have shrapnel in your ass, but my brother has no reproductive capabilities anymore. The missiles so. have all missed. And therefore, as kids, we would run the day after the you know the bombing and we would collect missile parts and they would have <laughs> writings on them. And we'd be like, oh, ha ha. Would yeah. they re- so they would? Yeah. These were, the, these were Kuwaiti missiles? Iraqi. Iraqi. Scud missiles. And what would they say? Kuwait, Kuwaitis, you would remember, were the ones being dealt the shorthand of the stake right. in that war. Right. 
So what would the Iraqi one? They, something would be written in Arabic. Uh, yeah, and it would be like, well, you only got fragments. It would be like but, Seinfeld, not so funny. Exactly. <laughs> you assume Montreal bagels are nothing compared to Baghdad bagels. Very best, very good. Uh, Super Bowl wrap up. Did you guys watch it? No. I watched it. You didn't watch it? Nope. You didn't? Nope. I watched it. Foreigner. It had like the similar emotional arc as the election, where just like things just like go wildly. Yes. yes. Seem like seem certain and get like wildly out of control. But this time I didn't care at all. So it was And fine. also, it didn't it feel a little bit like, like... I'm sorry, you mean uh, a little bit like the elections in which um, someone with a much younger foreign-born model wife who has a long history of cheating on everything uh, somehow comes from behind and wins stuff? Yeah. That arc. But the only difference was the ads were good. I mean, you had the Google ad... That, that showed the mezuzah. By the way, I was watching it with Rebecca and Ellie. Rebecca's gotten really into sports and Ellie's gotten really into staying up late when Rebecca does. And She's gotten really into commercials. Yeah, she, she is. She's really into you know, screen time. And this is like three and a half hours of screen time. I mean, this is this is manna. But Rebecca, Rebecca's friend, uh, Tessa, is a Patriots fan. And, you know, my dad is a Steelers fan. So he was watching the game with us two weeks ago. We, we tune into football in the last two weeks of the season. And the Oppenheimer way. That's right. And... Um, we were watching it and my kids both cried out, oh my God, that's a mezuzah because you don't see – you know when you see mezuzot on TV is when they're shooting – you know, some you're watching whatever. You're watching This Is Us or Parenthood, some family drama and they've rented a house somewhere in LA for a scene and they just don't realize – has that happened to you guys where you, you don't – they don't realize they rented a house and didn't realize there was a mezuzah, <laughs> there's a mezuzah there. a television show? No, that happens on, sometimes if you're watching – TV, you'll, they've rented a house to shoot in and they don't, just nobody noticed there was a mezuzah there and, and the families aren't Jewish, but as they shoot it, you see, oh, mezuzahs, that's the house they rented. This, I think, was an intentional Super Bowl ad mezuzah. Yeah, because it was a very inclusive ad, had all different types of people, all different types of families. And so I guess like having a mezuzah house, it seemed definitely intentional. You know what else was a very inclusive ad? What? Gal Gadot. Those ads were insane. She literally <laughs> takes her stiletto and like hits someone in the face with it. Yeah. What were those for again? So here's the amazing. It was for some amazing. Israeli company. It was for an Israeli company called Wix. That's a really great service that helps you build. You it's know, like easy, Israeli Squarespace. Easy websites. It's really fantastic. And the ad is all you know carnage. She kicks ass in a bar. So I can imagine like the, the creative concept meaning is like. Uh, Shlomo, we really need to make sure that uh, Israel is really represented and not in the stereotypical way, really to show the human face of this country. Yes? So how about, get this, it's Gal Gadot, she's in a bar, right? Bad guys come in, she grab a weapon, and she kill all of them. <laughs> Guys, over the past couple of years, we've gotten some questions about who records our music, our theme music that you hear coming in and coming out. And um, it's this amazing New York-based klezmer rock fusion band called Golem, which I've seen play live a couple times. And if you want to see them, they have a show coming up March 23rd at Drom, D-R-O-M, in the East Village. Um, it's it's one of their fake weddings. They did this once uh, 10 years ago, and they're doing it again. It was an old Catskills tradition to have a fake wedding at the hotels on Labor Day weekend as just kind of a fun way to end the summer. So they've brought back this tradition. They do a fake ceremony, fake rabbi. Um, last time they did a, a bride. Fake news reporting it. <laughs> fake podcasts. No, we, they, last time they had a bride and groom in drag, papa, and then a, a, a wedding party, and then they have like wild simcha dancing, and they play Jew music, and then they play rock covers, um, and they even get a real wedding cake. So the idea is for everyone to dress up as if you're going to a real wedding. It's from 7 p.m. Um, to midnight. Again, March 23rd. Uh, this is going to be insane. If you're anywhere, 
in the tri-state area, the quad-state area. If you're not in the country, you should go to this. Again, March 23rd, 7 p.m. to midnight. If you want more information, go to golemweddings.com slash fake hyphen wedding. Got that? It's golemweddings.com slash fake hyphen wedding. It will be one of the top two weddings of 2017. Our first Jew of the week is author Ayala Waldman. <laughs> Wait, did you really just say your first Jew of the week? Yeah, okay. we have two Jews of the yeah. week. You didn't know your your Jew, <laughs> Jew of the week. Jew Prime. Uh, she is the author of tons of books, including the Mommy Track Mysteries series, the essay collection Bad Mother, and now a book I've read, A Really Good Day. I didn't mean to imply I haven't read your others, but I wanted to... I, I doubt you've read the Mommy Track Mysteries. No, I wrote those a long time ago. More I did importantly, read Bad Mother. I wrote Love and Treasure, which is my Jewiest book. She wrote Love and Treasure, but her the book I've read most recently is A Really Good Day, which is about LSD microdosing. Yes. Are you tripping right now? No, no. I wish I was. And but it turns out there's not enough LSD in the world to survive a Trump presidency. Well, it also that, turns out right. that if I remember your book correctly, that your source gave you the last of his stash and then died or went senile. He was or old. Something. Or something. Or maybe it wasn't the last of I don't know anything about but you're this. you're now, you haven't, you had a month of tripping, sort of. Yes. And microdosing. You'll explain microdosing. Yeah. And now it's over. That's it. Now it's just back to doing you with your husband. (laughs) Only every couple of years. Only every couple of years. Anyway, tell us. Leo wanted first question. Leo wanted first question on this one. You know, this is how I think you're already kind of bringing, you know, peace and and love into the world. Uh Because I I knew you were going to come here and I was really excited, you know, to talk politics with you because I think, you know, you're a thousand percent wrong on everything. And then I read the book and I was like, oh, wait a second. You know, fuck Israel, Palestine. We all agree on hard drugs. There you go, <laughs> right? Can we kind of except we bring... I would I would question your definition because I don't think microdose certainly microdosing of LSD is not a hard drug. But well, I, don't I even think LSD. On LSD, so I don't <laughs> actually know what the micro version is like. I and I don't know what the macro version is like. So at micro and I kept dropping email hints like Liel. If you bring some, dro- I will dose yeah, on air. Right. You're really, really thirsty. For Let's get drugs. some order here. What's, yes. what's microdosing? Please tell us. Okay, so microdosing is to, is taking a tiny dose of a drug. In the case of LSD, it's ten percent of a typical dose. So you say if you dosed, if you were tripping for two days, let's say you took. 200 micrograms. That's a lot. That's about right. 10 micrograms is a microdose. And you do it. It's not, you don't trip. You don't see anything. I've never tripped. I don't know what, it, like, what it's like so to what trip. So what do you feel? What, you feel, all right, well, here's how I'll describe it the first time. I took it with great trepidation. I was looking for an alternative to an antidepressant because my drugs had stopped working. Well, can we also back up? Sorry, I don't mean to, to recursively back up on the backup, but you were very candid where you, you said, like, I, I wanted to do something because my mental health was out of whack and I was being a raging bitch to my family. Yes. And it, it occurred to me, like, that's what a lot of partners say about their partners and children say about their moms or dads. And then the response is like, no, it's not me. It's you. Like, I'm not being a bitch. You're being a little brat. You were like, actually, yes, I'm the problem. Oh, yeah. Do you really feel that I mean, way? Dude, like I your wrote husband a whole and kids book are called lovely. Bad people. Mother. I'm definitely the problem. I have a mental illness. I have a mood disorder. I'm definitely the problem, which is not to say that my husband's always right or my kids are always wonderful, that he's often wrong. They're often little jerks. But in, in that universe, I am the problem because I'm the one who has this crazy mood disorder and cycle all over the place. So I had to get that under control. I mean, like, it's actually mental illness. You know, I mean, I was, and I was just sinking faster and faster. Drugs weren't working. And then I read about this microdosing thing that all the kids are doing, and I thought, all right, I'll give that a try. Why not? Okay, so, t- so time number 10 one. So 10 micrograms. I decide I'm going to take it. I'll tell you how I got it in a second. 
But this is what I felt. Nothing. I sit down at my, I, I take it, I have my friend Yael over to make sure that I don't like lose my mind. It's always important to have like a Jewish, a gal, Jewish pal gal pal over to like lead to you down the non-trip. Right? Your, exactly. And, um, and Yael is sort of looking at me, I'm looking at me, I'm like, oh, am I going to trip? Am I going to trip? And then nothing <laughs> Wait, happens. I think I feel something, I think I feel something. Oh, exactly. No. And then I'm like, all right, let's just go to work. So I sat down and I started working on my book and all of a sudden like around 90 minutes in, I looked out my window. And it was springtime, and my um, dogwood tree was in bloom. And I just looked at it, and I thought, oh, huh, what a pretty tree. That's it. Like, not like, oh, the blossoms of spark, nothing. Just like, huh, that's a pretty tree. And that's when I knew that something was happening, because I do not notice the tree. I do not, you know, the the stop and smell the roses, there is none of that with me. There is just like, get to task, B, C, and D, check off your list, Go get the kids from work, from school, you know, drive them to their – well, my kids are not athletic. They just like do math tutoring and therapy because they're Jews. Um, but like – with occasional segues to Paris to, to buy – to yes, attend fashion shows. to attend fashion shows. Yes, my son likes fashion shows, not athletics. Um, anyway, so I that's all that happened except – that at the end of the day, and just like, mind you, I was suicidally depressed before I started. Like, no joke, Googling the effects of maternal suicide on children. At the end of that the day... very considerate, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, like, that's the one thing. I remember when Sophie was born, and they handed her to me, and my among my first thoughts was, oh, I guess that's not an option anymore. <laughs> uh, Jesus. I know, right? Life with a mood disorder. Like, oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. I'll but, have three um, more of these, please. I mean, once you have one, why not? That's anyway, so I had this really good day, hence the title of the book, A Really Good Day. I look back on my day, and it was like, it wasn't that I was giddy and ecstatic. I just, like, I worked well, and I was patient, and I had a kind of equilibrium, and I didn't freak out and so how long how long does this does this regime last? okay so i did this one month experiment and you don't do it every day you take a microdose this protocol developed by this psychedelic researcher named james fadiman is you take a microdose on day one day two you actually still feel the positive effects although you're not it's not like you're perceiving anything unusual you just feel better and day three day three for me was like oh there you are i yell at as usual so you didn't tell your kids till the end of the experiment. Right. So did you tell Mom your Mommy's dropping acid, honey. Yeah, yeah like, no. let's go to school. Um, did you tell your husband and how, how was, what was the process of telling friends? And okay, so I told my husband right with. away. My husband, like you, has done a lot of acid in his life. You know, when we met, I was like, I don't know if you take acid eight times, you're going to become psychotic. And he's like, yeah, it turns out that's not true because <laughs> I'm the evidence of that. But I had never dropped acid, so I didn't really know anything about it. But he was all for, I mean, you have to understand where I was when this started. Like my moods were completely out of whack. My, my medications had stopped working. I was either going to kill myself or destroy my marriage. So when he, he was willing for me to do anything Yeah, so when you better, said acid, he's like, awesome He's like, idea. fine, whatever you need. Like, what do you need? I mean, by then he had been like, do you want to go to a spa? Do you want, like he was just doing anything to get me from, you know, like he would come upon <laughs> me and I'd be standing in front of my medicine cabinet, like, a, you know, assessing the contents. And it's terrifying. It, when you're already taking care of four kids and to have a wife who's completely spiraling out of control. So from his point of view, it was like, please do whatever you need to do 
to not die. You know, but the kids, I didn't want to say like, mommy's trying LSD because she wants to kill herself. So I just said, mommy's trying new medicine. And they, they know that has been part of their lives for as long as I can remember. I'm like on this medication. I'm on Topamax, which makes me really stupid. So don't ask me for help with math, but very skinny. So I really feel great every time I look in the mirror or I'm on this drug that makes me really fat, but kind, kind of bitter. And ha- did you mean to write a book when you set out to try Not this? at first. I was really seriously just trying not to kill myself. And then about eight days, and what I said to myself is, okay, this novel you've been struggling with, just put it aside. And you you have to work every day, but you can just write whatever you want. So I would sit down and the first thing I do is like write, you know, what I was feeling, what I noticed, whether I was in a crappy mood or a good mood. And that you had to do that for the study. Yeah, I had to do that for, um, for Jim Fadiman's uh, informal uh, research, personal research project, which is like, you know, microdosers all over the country doing that. But uh, then I would just let myself write whatever I wanted. And I was also doing a ton of research at the time because I was just interested in the topic. I had I knew a lot about the criminal justice system and the war on drugs, but I didn't know a lot about psychedelics um, specifically. And, uh, and after about eight days, I sort of looked at this and I thought, oh, dude, you're writing a book. And then I thought, you can't write a book about being on drugs. I mean, just so you... Like, yeah, no one's ever done that. <laughs> I, well, like not my audience. You know who comes to my Next readings? Next thing you know, you'll be writing about abortions and, you know, being a bad mother to your kids and... That too, but like... Your husband's gay past. I mean, it's like... Pa- <laughs> roll back to... I don't think I ever wrote about my husband's gay past, but he did. I think I... And it, it was... It was, anyway, it was whatever. beautiful. It was touching. Roll back to like my last, like my last book tour. I went to like twenty-seven JCCs. What do you think the average age of the oh, audience? Know. You know who knows the answer to that? Yeah, <laughs> we do. This group. So, <laughs> like, I'm thinking, who the hell am I writing this book for? Because I'm gonna like roll up to the Milwaukee JCC, and I'm gonna be like, Esther, <laughs> Sonia, let's talk acid. And but I just the wrote it is, anyway. We're actually getting to a point in time where what you're gonna encounter, like seventy three year olds who actually dropped acid with well, Timothy Leary. That's like, what like, happened. Oh, you that's only been took so 10 crazy. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. My that was like what's happened that was so <laughs> insane. Like I I show up at um at in Seattle at this event at Seattle Town Hall. And I'm like, who knows? It's going to be up to like 26-year-olds, burners, whatever. And the, it's the oldest audience I've ever had, average age 70. And everybody wants to tell me about how LSD changed their lives. Amazing. It's incredible. It's amazing. And at any point were you thinking, you know, if I take, you know, 200 more <laughs> milligrams or whatever, that tree is going to defecate unicorns. Like, I want <laughs> right. to see that. Oh, here's the thing. I, my, the inside of my head is a really scary place. And if anybody in this world is going to have a bad trip, I'm not, not curious. Like, I am curious. My, the, the infrastructure I would need to feel safe in that, like, it's all about set and setting, right? The setting I would need to feel safe taking a big dose of LSD. I'd have to have like my husband holding me. I'd have to have your friend Yael would be there. Yes. Have... I'm, I'm just convinced that I would start vomiting black rats and like do a whole, you know, Auschwitz thing. Cause it always, it always, it goes always there. comes back. You know, there's a great thing in my book. There's a story in my book about this uh, survivor who, whose life was completely transformed by an ayahuasca trip. A man who'd been carrying with him mm-hmm. this survivor's guilt of decades who was convinced by a therapist friend to go down and do one of these like puke your guts out have diarrhea in peru and he did it and it changed his life he like actually he feel i mean 
it's so hard for me because I'm so not a spiritual person, but he feels like he walked the final steps of his father's life on the forced march with him and saw his body in the snow and was forgiven for surviving. That's my next trip, by the way. It's ayahuasca. (laughs) Yeah. Why? But here's the question. Why? Why would you want to take a drug that makes you have propulsive diarrhea and vomit? Just, you know. It's just trendy right now. That's that's where, you know. Are you trying to like The spirituality aspect comes, comes in. Because am I trying to meet someone? Uh, myself. <laughs> There's like you know, all this does, does tourism. Final or done? I, sorry, because that's the Jew of the week. Like four minutes. This is a micro <laughs> it's dose. A micro dose. It's a micro <laughs> Jew of the week. We have very short attention spans. So <laughs> I'm just blowing my nose to kind of protract Actually, the experience. So, so your kids appear in the book, and you know they've appeared in bit, your writing yeah. before, obviously. Um, much less as, if you notice in this than anything else. So before. as I was wondering, as they get older and become sort of more aware of everything, and they obviously know you've written about them, but like, is, do you have a sense of like, okay, they're 16 now, I shouldn't be writing about them as much, or like, I ask their permission. So the only kid who really like, there's some lines. They I they won't read anything I write so but so I read it to them and I insist that they look at <laughs> They're it. They're kids. They don't read. They're like <coughs> buy fine. buy mommy's book. Yeah, well, like there's a whole chapter about my daughter and I begged and begged and she finally agreed to read that chapter and she's a writer, which is they just don't. I think what happened was my kid, my oldest daughter, read the mysteries of Pittsburgh, which is a gay love story. It has a, by your husband by my husband. Yeah. Yes, and, and it, it has, creeped her out so much. Well, it's just that there was a lot of there was sex in the book, yep. and she just got so skeeved out. Not the fact that it was gay I sex, but that, that it kid, was sex. Nobody and in my she family reads what like I, a family what I fatwa. Yeah. They, yeah. She's like, no, we're not kids. Are not doing that. So there's definitely been things that I've written that I've said, okay, what do you think? And they've said no, and then I just cross it out because they're you know adult people. In terms of like bad mother, I there are things I regret because it turns that was out your collection of essays yeah that was my essay collection about mother. being a mom. There turn it turns out like the things you approve of when you're that you're fine with when you're seven are not the things you're fine with when you're fourteen. But it's I I my my children are my material, so I attribute the fact that I have any career to them. I would still be practicing law if I wasn't a mother. Can I do one final question? Mm-hmm. Okay, so later this year I'm getting married to another writer. So like, do you have any like like advice? You guys are both promoting books right now. I mean, is it have four kids? <laughs> Here's my advice. We, you know, there are two ways people do it. Either they don't read anything that each other reads in this kind of weird dynamic, like that's the Joyce Carol Oates model where like you never edit, you never read, or you have the codependent Ayala and Michael model where you read everything and you comment on everything. And like, even in email, I've said things like, I can't believe you sent that email without me having a chance to edit it, you know, like, um, but the key to our success is that we, we do we allow ourselves to fight about the work without emotion. So like if I'm editing him, we'll have a screaming fight and it's always the same fight. Let's say I'm doing the editing. I edit him. He says, you idiot. You do not know what I'm trying to accomplish. You don't get it. And these notes are stupid. And then we have a huge screaming fight. And then eventually he says, oh my God, you're totally right. I get it. I'm going to change it. So we can't just skip, even though I often say, why don't we just skip to the point where you say I'm right? That doesn't happen, but you just have to separate the your ego from the notes because the fact is having a literary enterprise in your marriage or any enterprise can be really awesome because otherwise, as soon as you have kids, you become sort of 
foreman in the same factory on swing shifts. And all you're doing is like <laughs> handing them off one to the other and like updating. Like this one is sick and that one's got diarrhea and for some reason her poop is blue and I'll see you tomorrow. And like you, you want to have something in your marriage that has nothing to do with either like kids or sex. And that's how, you know, you keep it alive. I Don't you agree? I do agree, actually. I can, yeah, I, I, I like the foreman on different shifts. Like, it's, it's process. It's like, sometimes I feel like, could we have a conversation that's not updating on who's right. eaten, who needs to be driven where, exactly. who's, you know. Um, thank you for being our Jewess of the week. Thank you. I love the word Jewess. It's one yes. of my favorite words. You're on my team. <laughs> could I have a, a sick high You have bag? made Mark I so um, bringing He's back really trying Jewess. to bring back Jewess. Jewess. We're bringing yeah, back we're Jewess. Doing it. Um, the, the book is A Really Good Day. It's about LSD microdosing. It's available only at independent bookstores near you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bye. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our next Jew of the week is a semi-Semite, a pizza bagel, as Mike Pesca would say, half I tie, half Jew. We are both pizza bagels. Can one say I tie? Is that, I don't think so. No, half Italian, half Jew. Uh, Andrea Salenzi, um, she's the host and producer of YOY, a show about dating and relationships that, like us, is on the Panoply Network. So you can find it at panoply.fm or iTunes or whatever. Uh, YOY was named a best new podcast of 2016 by The Times, NPR, Huffington Post, iTunes. And she claims to hold the world record for what, Andrea? Most guests booked for an hour-long radio show, and that's 67. <laughs> and what, show, what was the show? <laughs> it's a show called Seven Second Delay that's on this great radio station, WFMU in Jersey City. I love WFMU. Me yes, too. Yes. 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 It's a great radio station. It's hosted by Ken Friedman and Andy Was Bradman. the goal to, to do 67? Like, to, like we're going to break this record? I think we wanted one a minute and then I just kept booking off Craigslist, kept booking off Craigslist and we had enough weirdos and twins that it just added up. <laughs> All right. So your show is about YOI. Weirdos about- and twins. <laughs> your show is about dating and relationships. First of all, we have to know where you stand. Are you are you spoken for? I'm single. Oh, so no, you're nodding and saying I'm single. Um, She's nodding to her acceptance of your question. Her acceptance of my question. (laughs) If you listen to the show, you sort of know a lot about what's going on in your in your personal life. And I and I do, but but the show, like I don't know what's happened in the last month. Every episode ends with a kicker that's like, oh yeah, I'm sad and alone. (laughs) It's not going to be solved that easily. You can't solve it just by starting a podcast about dating. If anything that works against you, I agree. That was my. That's sort of my question to you. Do people when they find out that that's what you're doing, are they sort of like, oh, so you're only talking to me? Because a lot of times, like you are in a bar talking to people, or you're doing stuff for the show. Are there guys who are sort of like, ooh, yes. I don't know if I'm into this. 
Yes. Or like, don't talk about it. And, I, and I'm and i really clear with them. Like, I won't talk about it unless you do something incredibly awful in this interaction that we're having as two strangers at a bar having a drink. <laughs> and then they always find a way to do something awful and I that's have to right. talk about it. Because that's an invitation, as you surely know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, really? Okay, well. <laughs> I'm working on an episode this week. Um, I recently had an interaction at the bar that ended with the guy asking me the question, do I hate men? Um, wow. Because I was talking about the Women's March and being a feminist and this project I'm working on and my podcast and like, my breakup. I hate one. <laughs> But he didn't just say – he sort of said it like, you know, I have to say something to you. Like, Yes. Is it that you hate men? Are no, men, it's like, a good question for me to be asking. If I think that there are more women writers and artists and friends who I respect and admire who I think about all the time, maybe I prefer women, you know, generally. Maybe, maybe you're I, a lesbian? Maybe I hate men and I resent that I need to – sleep with them and want to sleep with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's cruel out there, isn't it? Here's a question I, I have. Do you think, as somebody who observes the the dating and mating mores um, out there, do you think that couples work better if they're a lot like each other or are you more of an opposites attract kind of person? Because I feel like the world divides into people, into relationships that are more one and more the other. And I have a very definite opinion on this, but Gosh, I don't even have the chance to get to that question because I'm just looking for someone with a job who's interesting to talk to. And I don't even I, – the rest of that, I don't even end up talking about. I think, about. Every, I think every, most people I are in your camp. Like I actually don't think people are like, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this. I think people that I know are just like, I'm just looking for like a good a dude. Nice, a nice like, guy, yeah. Or, so a, nice, there, or a nice woman. listening to us, uh, I think, right now for whom this is completely crazy because here we are, you know, young people in Manhattan, Right. Stuff of TV shows thinking, really? It's hard to find someone with a job to talk to in New York City. I might have incredibly high standards for this. I mean, what's a bigger thing that you're looking for in your life than someone to share it with? Well, I used to have this theory that there was there's what I call the Oppenheimer curve. And it was a graph of your personal quality level against um, the likelihood that you'll find love at an early age. And it was a bell curve. And basically it was at one end was people who are really, really lame, like just just horribly ugly and bad personalities, whatever. <laughs> and they have no likelihood of finding love at an early <laughs> level. At the other end was really high quality people, like you're good looking and you're funny and you're interesting, but they have high standards because they want, and they have trouble finding their unicorns. In the middle, if you're fairly mediocre, you pair off at 24. What do you think of that? So, you, so the problem being you're, you're, you're awesome. You're awesome, so it's going to take you a while to find someone awesome. No, if I had met that person at 24, you know, I would have ended the game of like... You'd have a different podcast. I would would have sat down on my chair and stopped playing musical chairs. And I just, I haven't met that person. And I don't think my standards... It's just think about friendships in your life. Think about everyone you've ever met in your planet. And like... Usually five or six people stand out. It's just, wow, I met them and they everything they said I found interesting. And I could have spent all day with that person. It's so rare right, that that happens. But mediocre happens. people don't look for interesting conversation. They look for someone to like flip channels with sitting sitting next to. No, they're looking for love too. Yeah, I think it's, just, every- it's different love for them. It's I think it's different love for mead people. This is a very, very dark view. Yeah, really, really strong take. It is different so, from mediocre people, y'all. Yeah? So They're what, not looking for the same love. So what should we do? Can we abolish Valentine's Day? I personally think it's really stupid. And I imagine... I mean, it's stupid, but I do think we need to talk about love and romance more just generally, because I think it was the lack of conversations about when do you hope to meet a partner? How do you think that that's going to happen? Have you considered online dating? I just I want people to start recommending dates to me or giving me advice or telling me about their single friends. So if there's one holiday on the map that gives us an excuse for people to help me fall in love with someone, then I'm into it. So having the super, super great um, and successful podcast about this topic, does it does it? 
fuck things up even more for you? Do you, do you find yourself like going even deeper and more meta into the whole kind of mechanism of like love and dating and and, and kind of just the being so intense in your head? I, maybe that's just how I do everything in my life, though. <laughs> you know, uh, but I do think that there was a path for getting into college where someone said, oh, you need to do good on this test and you need to get good grades and you need to work really hard on your applications. And I had binders for all the colleges I was applying to. You know, I met Whoa. with mentors. <laughs> I, had, for I was trying to get out of the Midwest. I had dreams. <laughs> I literally scribbled out an application during a boring all-school assembly. Like, I didn't there were have no any, binders. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have any guidance. So I read the Princeton Review and I figured out my plan and I executed it and I got into a great college and it's opened up so many opportunities for me. But no one told me the path for falling in love with someone. It, so I'm really curious, yeah. though. You must have had some thought when you were, say, you know, 17, 18, 21. Yeah, what did you I imagine told, then it would be like? I was like? told I'd get my MRS degree. Okay. And then? Do you guys people, know wait, what that people is? People still, still say that? Yeah. Yes. In the Midwest, they still say, but seriously, like they say it like. You'll probably meet him in college. And I think every woman who grads, graduates from college and you haven't met him, there's this cognitive dissonance that happens. And you're like, wait, I thought that this was going to happen. When my mom was at so easy. Penn State, she said some of the Gentile girls have been sent there told to find a Jewish husband because he won't drink, he'll earn a good living, and he won't hit you. <laughs> I've heard that too. So so at that – is there a moment? Is there like a long twilight of, of the soul? Is there like a moment in which you're like, holy fuck. I mean things are – we need a new game plan. Uh, or is it just a slow process? I don't know. How, I mean I don't know how to solve it. I It actually – you know, I'm 32. I broke up with my you ex. You were 31 10 minutes ago on this show. I'm 32 and – You've 32 aged <laughs> February 26th. I'm going to be 32. There we go. So I'm basically 32. I'm told I need to freeze my eggs by 34. Jesus. Right? So if I actually have a dream of starting a family, am I optim- Am I willing to bet which way am I willing to imagine my life playing out? And it's I'm living in this zone where I have no idea what my family the future will be. Will I be able to have a kid? Will I end up having to adopt? Will I meet him when I'm 50 or will I meet him when I'm 35? I have no way of gaming out my future. And I'm at a point in my career where everything else is going great, but then there's this huge question mark, which seems to hold me back from being treated as a full adult. And Do you feel that way, really? Yeah. I T- think you're tr- as a woman, you're treated as if you're in flux, that this is, an, this is an unsolved part for you. So my grandma, you know, talks to me about it a lot, that she'd like to see me in love before she dies. Oh, what it, do I it, do about does that? Does it fill you with rage? Uh, it, it, well, some people assume that it would make me feel like, um, like there's something wrong with me. And I don't feel that way. I, I'm Good. important to a lot of my friends. I'm loved by my family. I don't think that there's something deeply wrong with me. I just don't think love is guaranteed in this life. I think I would be so happy if it happened for me, but I don't think it's a sure thing for me that my future is going to play out the way I want it to play out. This is very well. We love you. This very is very much. moving, actually. And I always, I mean, I think that where I, I wanted to marry at such a young age. I was so eager to have a family, but I never felt like the possibilities was evaporating before my eyes. You know, I think that must. Yeah, I think it's yeah. different for women. You're of a course, man, no, of course right? it is. I, and that's what I'm saying. Is it's heartbreaking? I think not to be bleak about young it. Young men have gotten extremely entitled, and I think that the idea, like they don't have to settle down, like oh, college for them is like not for the same thing like that you just described. It's like this. It's like experimentation. Blah blah. blah. You could always marry a Slovenian model. <laughs> It'll all work out. It's always that. Like, I think it's actually the cards are stacked against women much more now, even than they used to be. Yeah, and then add to that that my income's supposed to peak at 40 and a man's income peaks at 60. So basically my whole future happiness is going to depend on can I make this well, work for me say, in the next eight years. I will say this. Worry less about the money. You don't seem like you're worrying about the money. No, but I I'm just saying like... that my I'm, – I'm saying money is social value. 
So the reason why my income might peak at 40 is because I'm less valuable to society as a whole. This is amazing. We're going to get between you and Ayelet Waldman talking about doing LSD. This will be the (laughs) we will generate more mail on than ever. Um, If people want to listen to YOY, what episode should they start with? They could just plug into the feed on iTunes or Stitcher. But is there an app that's like if they want to go to this dark place with me, it's episode number eight. How will I know where I talk about my breakup over the kid question? That was a great episode. Um, Andrea Salenzi, thank you for being our half do of the week. Thank you so much for having me. Why can't a dish break a hammer? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Cause a hammer's a hard head. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, because, 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 goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is a Gentile, but actually in her own tradition, everyone else is Gentiles. Uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is a professor at Harvard. Uh, She grew up among the potato farms and sagebrush of eastern Idaho uh, in a Latter-day Saint or Mormon family. Mormons, of course, like Jews, call people outside their faith Gentiles. But she's joining us for this Valentine's Day episode to talk about A House Full of Females, her new book on the development of plural marriage in the early Mormon church. Uh, Sister Ulrich, they say sister in the LDS church, right? Sure. Okay, we're going to call you Sister Ulrich. Sister, um, so the new book, A House Full of Females, is about the, the early days of polygamy, right? Of plural marriage in the, in the Mormon church? Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. Okay. And we're a bunch of, uh, of Jews of varying religiosity here in this room. Uh, we haven't done polygamy in our f- tradition since about the year 1000, except in certain very disreputable circles. Uh, so we tend to take a very dim, <laughs> we tend to take a very dim view of it. Um, but you're, okay. you're rehabilitating polygamy a little bit, right? No, that's not my goal. I'm trying to help people understand a crucial historical moment um, in the 19th century and a crucial set of rulings on religious liberty, which is something that probably incur- um 
is important to all of us. Well, but I mean, you don't, I mean, were these women, look, basically the American government forced the church to end polygamy. Was that wrong? Yes. Was that wrong of, of, of us, of the rest of us to do? Should, should it still be allowed? That is not my goal. My goal is to explain what it was and the kind of uh, arguments that were used against the Latter-day Saints, which are the kind of arguments actually were used against Jews, Muslims, American Indians, um, East Indians, all the people who did not conform to a dominant Protestant ideology in the 19th century. So the really fascinating thing about this crusade is um, the way in which it was conducted. And the argument was uh, people can believe anything they want to, but they can't destroy the institution of marriage through their practices. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? So I think it's the setting and the kind of arguments made that are interesting to contemporary readers. One thing your book highlights is um, some of the unexpected ways in which plural marriage was actually um, empowering for for women. Can you explain some of that and, and the sort of the complicated nature of it? Yes. I think what we need to do in looking at the situation is to realize that monogamy was not such a great system in a world where women had no property rights, uh, where legal divorce was extremely difficult to secure. So there were women who felt uh, they had more rights within this community than they had had in their own marriages. And there were actually women who fled legal husbands in order to become Latter-day Saints, and in some cases, part of plural households. Not every Latter-day Saint um, was a polygamist. You know, that's fascinating to me, and and thinking back to to our own tradition, the Jewish tradition, you know, the, the Bible never... Uh, officially, you know, prohibits um, polygamy, but it does give us several accounts of polygamy, and they're all awful. They all make it sound like very, very, very kind of contested. What do you make of that kind of... um... Well, they're not all awful. Some of them are, but the interesting thing about the Latter-day Saints is they built on the notion of the covenant with Abraham. Right. Um, and they really thought they were practicing an Abrahamic form of marriage. Um, I mean, the world was very different, but they took that spiritual promise of a chosen people and believed that they were either literal descendants of Abraham or had been adopted into Abraham's family. They also believed... American Indians were descendants um, of ancient Israel and imagined a world at some point in which all these various tribes would come together. Do you believe that, by the way, that American Indians... Do I believe that... Do I believe what? That the American Indians are descended from ancient Israel? Um, No. Uh, I know. But I believe the concept of uh, kind of universal 
humanity. Regardless, we're all descended. Uh, we're all human beings, and we're all brothers and sisters. So Amen. that's that's the theme I take uh, from that uh, 19th century concept. So, so you're a historian, you're a professor, you're also a practicing Mormon. Did you receive any pushback from the community saying sort of like, oh, don't, don't write about that. Like, we don't want to talk about that anymore. Or did you? Did no, I've, I've received no pushback. But, you know, maybe people haven't yet finished the book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's a very sophisticated uh, readership for serious history among Latter-day Saints. And to um, educated uh, people, this is not a surprise, although I think the particular angle I have taken is unusual in that most accounts um, focus on, you know, the male leaders. And I have really tried to focus uh, in large measure on the women who actually helped create the system. You can't have plural marriage without women. And the old notion, they're all miserable, they all hate it, they've been forced into this, which is one reading of the biblical narrative, as you indicated. Um, it doesn't hold up. So, um, um, Absolutely, there were people who were uncomfortable um some of them left, including one of my great-grandmothers. But there were others who embraced it. So um, I guess there's room for many ways of living a life. So this episode is going to be our Valentine's Day episode. It's airing uh, right around the time of Valentine's Day. Uh, Mormons are well-known uh, for marrying young and then staying married. So uh, what's the secret? How, how do you find spouses while you're still at, at BYU or the University of Utah uh, at an age when most people, in most secular people, think they don't know anything about how to find the right person, and then and then never divorce them? Like, what, what's, what's, what's the special sauce? Ah, uh, well, the interesting thing is 19th century Mormons were more likely to divorce, partly because of the, the practice of plural marriage. In terms of my own life, I was, I've been married for uh, more than 50 years to somebody I met in college um, and very happily married. I don't know what the secret is, but I think a lot of it is being part of a community where marriage is validated and where people assume that you work through problems rather than give up and start over, which is not to say that I believe divorce is always uh, a, a, the wrong decision. Sometimes it's the right decision. But in my generation, I mean, you have to consider that I'm a child who grew up in the 1950s um, <laughs> in a very pro, pro-monogamy uh, Mormon uh, community sure. and it's worked out well. I'll have to say. <laughs> well, we wish that on on all of our listeners, uh, Professor Ulrich. Thank you so much. The book is a house full of females, and uh, thanks for for joining us. Okay, thank, thank you.
few months back, singer-songwriter Noam Osband came into our studios to record his song about how anti-Semitism can best be understood through puppies. If you don't remember, go back and give a listen. But first, give a listen to this special Valentine's Day ditty that he came in and recorded just for you guys to celebrate the season of love. Noam Osband, everyone. The lunar moth looks lazy, but its life is rather crazy. Hatching, flying, quickly dying in just days. Those moths are made without a mouth. No way to kiss or to go south. No time to whine or dine. Just time to go get laid. Yes, how intense moth romance must be. If each sunset that they do sees but one seventh of the sunsets, they will know. One week to meet, one week to wed, one week beside the lover's head, one week to make all the sweet moth love, they will know. Lord, let me live just like the lunar. Let my heart stay straight and truer than those other animals with longer lives. Yes, I've no time to take for granted those sweet pheromones you planted. Yes, I like to lay between your winged thighs. Oh, baby, we've no time for games. We've just a week. It's such a shame. No time to fly down, make that trip to El Salvador. Because we've won, die when you need. So lean back, lover, take my seed. Mating is what lunar lives are for. Mating is what lunar lives are for. Mazel tovs, Stephanie. Ooh, I got one. What you got? To the uh, 20 or so rabbis who got arrested Monday night protesting outside of Trump Tower in opposition to um, his travel ban. I think that is awesome. They got arrested because they basically just like sat down in the street by Columbus Avenue, just like stop traffic. Go rabbis. Yeah. Mazel tov to them. Liel, Go rabbis. What you got? Uh, my mazel tov is to my friend Ben Marcus, who celebrated- The writer, Ben his... Marcus? No. Oh, just another guy named a, Ben Marcus. A Ben Marcus. A Ben Marcus, yeah. Who celebrated his birthday uh, this week uh, and who, in typical Ben Marcus style, had us all over for a wonderful Chinese New Year meal. Uh, so, Ben and Alana, yes, yeah. Go, yeah, go, Ben Marcus. And my mazel tov is to someone who, who gave me a great reading experience. Um, the writer David Sachs, who wrote the book The Revenge of Analog, about how books, vinyl, um, board games, it's all that book. stuff is coming back. Mm-hmm. I just loved the book. I thought it was terrific. I'm going to write about him for uh, for Tablet Magazine's blog, The Scroll. Thank you, Canadian Jew and Montreal bagel preferer David Sachs. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited superbly by Noah Levinson and produced expertly by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Laura Baum. Kosher slaughtering by Joyce Ketterer. Thank you, Joyce. On Twitter, we're at TabletMag. I'm at MarkOp1. Liel is at Liel. Stephanie is at Stuffism. Stephanie is also on the Instagram at Sputnik. Our music is by Golem, who remember you can go see live. We record in Argo Studios, which is more than a studio. It's a sonic home. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>